Good morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome to... Good morning. Yes, we are. <laughs> um, welcome to Sunday School. Um, just, just so you know, there are two colors of sheets. Uh, one has been dipped in uh, Jerusalem oil, and that's why it's blue. If you have one of those, it means that you are special and you will receive the unction. And <laughs> no, no, it's just a mistake. So it's the same. <laughs> it's the same shit. Um, but it, it's, it was just a mistake uh, that I didn't realize until I started to see the blue sheets, and I was like, "What is going on?" So don't don't be alarmed. Uh, we will go back to white next week, Lord willing. Um, let's start in. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the church. Uh, we thank you for all that you have done uh, throughout the ages to call people to yourself. And uh, thank you for uh, the opportunity and the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ to continue considering uh, the work that you are doing in the church and how uh, you continue bringing people in. So we thank you for that. We pray that you may help us this morning as we consider uh, two more modes of the church. Bless us, Lord, and uh, bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So um, last week we had um, the invisibility and the visibility of the church, right? And uh, remember that when we are making that distinction, we are not making the uh, we are not talking about two churches. That is very important. We're talking about one church, right? Uh, another thing that I've been trying to emphasize a lot is that although the raw material for these distinctions is found in the scriptures, it was not always um, evident. That is to say, we don't have. Um, Clement of Rome, one of the first uh, theologians of the church, going, oh, the church is visible and invisible, organic and in, an institution, militant and triumphant. Those, those come with time as we struggle with heresies, as we struggle with things that uh, God in his providence sends to his church. Then we start uh, sharpening and, uh, and, and improving our understanding of of uh, the church. In other words, there is development in our theological understanding of the church and of, uh, of our doctrine even. I think about what heresies have forced us to do with Christology, right? We need to now affirm that it's fully God, fully man, and, and, and so on. And think what um, common uh, modern culture is doing with our understanding of um, uh, the relationships between uh, uh, a woman and a, uh, a man, right? Now we need to clearly state and affirm that um, marriage is between a man and a woman, and only a man and a woman, right? Why? Uh, because of the cultural climate that we find ourselves in, right? Uh, so those kind of things force the church to advance and to improve in their Theological, theological understanding of our doctrine. And in that sense, theology is something that is always improving, something that is always advancing. We cannot go back to the 16th century and retake the 16th century and apply it to our lives. For once, we have many, many things that they don't. Bathrooms, one of those. Um, hot water, right? Um, sanitization. Uh, so, so circumstances are different, and our theology needs to match the times as well. Not that we are going to change that, but we are going to uh, talk according to the challenges that we have today while affirming what we have affirmed in the past. And uh, the church militant and triumphant is one of those that uh, was developed precisely because of one of those struggles as well. So, so in a sense, heresies and schisms and all of those things are really, really sad because we see the church divided and, and fighting and Satan sowing its seed and everything. Yet on the other hand, those things are really helpful for the church because as we go through those things, uh, we improve in our understanding and God preserves 
his church as well. So we would not have good Christological doctrine, good uh, ecclesiology, if we would not have uh, schisms and heresies and things like that. Reformation is one of those things as well, right? We will not have Reformation if we're not by the distortions of the church in the uh, 15th and 14th uh, centuries. So, all right. With that in mind, then, uh, let's continue with what you have in your special blue sheets and in the normal white sheets. Um, so we have this morning two more modes of the church. Um, and these, again, have to do with how do we understand the existence and the um, manifestation of the church uh, here on earth and also in glory. How do we understand that, remember? Uh, today uh, we will explore the militant and triumphant church and also the local and universal church. Not to be confused with the universality of the church, which is one of the attributes of the church. Similar, but not the same, all right? Um, similar, but not the same. Uh, when we talk about local and universal church, we're talking about the church down here, not the church from the beginning of the world to the end of it that we cannot see. Um, so we will see uh, a working concept for both of these modes, and we will explore some historical background behind these two and some errors as well. Um, and especially with militant and triumphant, these concepts are so important that when we miss one of those, we tend to fall into, into errors regarding the nature of the church. Uh, think about uh, overly positivistic view of the church. And we are going to talk about that because there is a very clear instance in church history when one of the church fathers thought the church had one. And I'll talk about that later. But anyhow. Uh, so there is, there is good biblical support that we will see later uh, for the idea of the militant church. Um, less prevalent than that, uh, some few, fewer support for the idea of a triumphant church. And that has a reason. We only see the triumphant church with our eyes and in our experience when we are in glory, right? And that only partially. Why do you think that is? So you go to heaven, you die? Hopefully not today. Um, and you go to heaven and then you go, oh, yes, I'm in glory. Um, and I'm no, longer, I'm no longer fighting against sin. Okay. But that is a still partial triumph. Why, why do you think that will be? You are in glory and triumphing, but you are not entirely, you have not received everything yet. Why do you think that will be? Yep. What else? You have you've you've gone beyond it, but the rest of the world will not. Yeah. So even even when we die, and when we are before the presence of God in glory, even then we are awaiting something else, right? Uh, the freedom of sin from the cosmos is one of those. Stephen. Yes, resurrection too, right? If we are going to live in this world, uh, sin has to be removed. Everything that is sinful has to be removed. And so when Jesus Christ comes and we are resurrected, our souls united to our body again in glory, then we see finally the church triumphant and the church uh, entirely in glory. But uh, in the meantime, it's just partially in glory. We die, we go to heaven, we see his presence, we are with Jesus, yes. But remember, the end of God's plans is not for us to be floating around in a cloud. The end for God's plans is to bring his people back to this world where we live in um, the consummation for eternity, right? With perfect bodies, perfect creation. Um, the presence of God is among us forever. There is no temple in the New Jerusalem because God himself is with us. So that's, that's where we are going. That's the final vision of the triumphant church. The church will be there finally in glory. But in the meantime, we see just a partial triumphant church. So we have the two, right? Militant church and um, triumphant church. So let me just read, read here what Berkhoff has to say about this. The church in the present dispensation, that is today, right? As we are living in this era, is a militant church. Um, 
That is, she's called unto and is actually engaged in a holy warfare. Um, that doesn't mean we are going to kill people who don't agree with us. That's Islam. That's not Christianity, right? Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, Christians are to engage in a crusade. Again, that's, that's not Christianity. Uh, it has happened in history. I'm not saying it hasn't happened. It has happened in history, but that is not what the church is called to. Holy warfare against what Paul says, uh, spiritual battle, right? Uh, against Not against flesh and blood, blood but against uh, uh, principalities and princes of, of this age. So it's a spiritual warfare. This, of course, does not mean that she must spend her strength in self-destroying. Uh, I don't know that word, and I'm not sure I copied that rightly. Um, but I think he means internal struggles. Uh, but that she is duty-bound to carry on an incessant warfare against the hostile world in every form in which it reveals itself, whether in the church or outside, outside of it, and against all the spiritual forces of darkness. Um, so that's, <clears throat> excuse me, a working concept of what the church militant is. I want you to pay attention to certain things that he says. Uh, first, he says, is duty bound? In other words, it's not an option. Um, and that can happen individually or at the level of the church. Uh, think about widespread kind of sins, like gossip, right? It becomes normal to be gossiping around. Uh, what does the pastor and the elders have to do? Start stopping up gossip in themselves and then in the congregation as well, right? Um, that's spiritual warfare, church level. Uh, what about <clears throat> uh, persecution, right? Uh, well, we need to go down to our knees and pray. What about uh, extreme sin? Uh, when we see a uh, um, pastor leaving uh, his family for another family and committing an, an affair, well, that's a disgrace. But it doesn't get solved by saying, <clears throat> you know, oh, uh, let's sue the guy. It gets solved by surrendering to God in prayer and saying, Lord, have mercy on us, because this is horrible. That's a spiritual warfare. It will be um, strange to say, oh, that guy committed suicide. Let's behave him. No, let's pray for him. May he come to repentance and may the Lord uh, grant us a better shepherd. And Lord, have mercy on us. What a terrible thing, uh, right? So duty-bound. Uh, and what about yourself as well, right? Don't we have to struggle against our sins every single day, right? Uh, contentment, um, uh, praying for others, um, being merciful, showing God's goodness to your neighbor. Those are things that don't come naturally to us that we need to fight for, right? A spiritual warfare again. Um, so it reveals itself inside in the church or out, outside of it. The best example of that, heresies, right? Heresies, divisions, uh, things like that inside the church. Um, suddenly there is a pastor who has more or less a concept that we don't understand and uh, the presbytery gets involved and then the whole denomination gets involved. Turns out he was speaking heresy. Um, well, that's a, an internal struggle. Outside of the church, well, turns out now the church is being pressured to, like England, think England, it's been pressured to accept homosexual marriage and to bless those things. Uh, well, that's a pressure that is coming outside of the church. How do we deal with it? Uh, well, we oppose it or we accept it. That's another spiritual warfare that is manifested itself in physical form, right? And then, and against all the spiritual forces of darkness, um, in every form in which it reveals itself. Remember, the fight of God against, uh, it's against, and the fight of grace is against sin. It's not, it's not against anything else. 
God that destroys everything and is seeking to destroy everything that is sinful in this world, not everything that he has created. Because sin is like a virus, infects God's creation. And what God grace, God's grace does is kind of like an antibiotic that is uh, 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 injected in your body and then cleanses the sickness. That's what God's grace is doing. When you, um, when you have like an antibiotic in your body, pretend that that doesn't happen. But let's say it, perf it works perfectly, doesn't kill anything else. Um, that's what God's grace does. Doesn't kill you. Doesn't make you a new, uh, an entirely new person. You don't become entirely different. You are uh, a restored person. Your will comes back to God. You want to do what is good. But it's not like, oh, my name before was Christian. Now, you know, my eye colors have changed. My, eye, my skin color has changed. I have become shorter, um, stouter. And, uh, and um, you know, I speak perfect Arabic. That doesn't happen when you become a Christian. You don't become an entirely different ontological person. You still are who you are, but God is removing sin from you. So he's removing sinful things. And in that sense, sin reveals itself in certain aspects of culture, in certain aspects of your neighborhood, your family life, all, all those things that we're engaged in, and we are duty-bound to fight against those as well. All right? Um, think about, just think about what difference would it make if you go to India and you decide to go to church. And you discover that in the church, uh, those who sit at the front are the ones who belong to the higher class. And those who go in the back are those who belong to the lower class. Uh, don't your mind goes to James immediately? What are you doing in the church that doesn't exist? Oh, you're bringing politics to the pulpit. No, we are renewing our minds according to scriptures. There is at some point, brothers and sisters, that the scripture is going to speak against our culture and you're talking about politics is not a good excuse anymore uh, because it's in the scriptures, right? Um, so those are the things that he's mentioning. Now, uh, let's see certain, certain Bible verses here that speaks about that. So think about the following images, slaves, ambassadors, sheep, sojourners, strangers, light and salt, and witnesses. All of those things imply a conflict and imply tension. Uh, think about Paul, Romans 1. Paul, slave of Jesus Christ. And then he says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. So just as he is a slave, we are slaves too. And I don't know, but last time I checked, uh, being a slave was not being a master. Whatever your understanding of a slave is, whether that is, you know, uh, because you got in debt and now you are a slave and therefore you are kind of respected or the worst kind of a slave where you have no rights um, and then someone boils you alive because you are his slave like Nero did with his slaves, uh, it doesn't matter. The point is, you are not the master. Uh, so um, doesn't say kings, right, of this earth right now. It doesn't say proclaim what you want and God will give you. New Cadillac. <laughs> doesn't say that, right? Um, um, Frederick Nietzsche says that he hates Christians because they have this Cheaply attitude. Who does that? Like, who offers the other cheek? Right? Uh, who lets himself being uh, um, step on on purpose? Ship like character. Uh, first Peter, sojourners, right? Strangers. Uh, those, all of those things imply conflict and tension. So believers are called to fight against sin in their own lives. Uh, that is Romans 7, uh, specifically 18 through 25. Let me just read it to you. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Uh, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Uh, now, if I do what I do not want, 
it is no longer me who I do it, but sins that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Um, so I don't know if you can feel the tension of what Paul is saying, right? It's like I'm in, uh, continually struggling against my sin. I don't like it and sometimes happen. And that's still this sinful nature that is still clinging to me. And yet other times uh, I, I do conquer, which is chapter 8 of the book of, of Romans. Looks, look uh, there, Hebrews 12, 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Um, give me just a second. So the book of Hebrews is written to some Hebrews, as you know. And um, these guys are struggling with the idea of going back to uh, Judaism. Judaism was respected by the Romans, ancient religion. You were highly regarded because you were one of those ancient guys who have been worshiping this God forever, so we are going to honor that. And they know we have redemption in, Jesus, in, in God before. We had the sacrifices, these blinking things that were amazing. Can we not just go back there? Because it seems like persecution is going to come, and we don't want to suffer. And, uh, and um, the uh, author of Hebrews is saying, uh, no, brothers, there is no redemption if you go back. You cannot sacrifice Jesus Christ again. And in that context, he goes, because remember, in the struggle against your sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And it seems like he's making reference to another people and other nations uh, around the Hebrews who are being persecuted in that way, who are being killed in that way, and he was kind of like, you got it not that bad, actually. So please continue working, continue struggling, continue fighting. Now what about fight with the world? Uh, Ephesians 6.12. Uh, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, and John 9, uh, 15, if you were in, uh, of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates, hates you. Uh, and uh, let me just go to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, just when God... Uh, just when Adam and Eve, excuse me, had made friends with the devil. And they were doing great, like shaking hands, dancing and partying, uh, because both of them have eat, had eaten of the tree. Uh, and the devil is like, yes, God comes and starts enmity in Genesis 3.15. He divides, separates, starts a war between uh, humankind and the devil. So the militant nature of the church starts by God himself because of sin. And he is the one who puts enmity, fight uh, against, against the devil. Um, so Paul speaks of jointly contending for the gospel of faith uh, and suffering with Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, he speaks of strenuous toil and exer uh, exertions on behalf of fellow believers. Uh, he himself described the Christian life as an athletic competition, right? Um, that's Second uh, Timothy 2, 5. That's not a very familiar, so let me read it. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So all of these things give, give you the idea of, yeah, the Christian life is something that we need to uh, fight for, work hard at it, prepare ourselves for, right? That's the militant nature of the church. There is no verse in the scriptures that go, well, now you are saved, relax, live the good life, maybe you can go to Aruba and enjoy a, a good piña colada, right, and, and rest. And when you die, then you, don't worry, 
don't worry, because when you die, everything is going to be okay. Um, that is not how it works. That's not how it works. Uh, in fact, uh, if you were to, the, the sinful nature is so prevalent in us that if you were to go like, I'm going to close myself in this room, white walls, nothing else, sin is still there. And you still have to fight against it, right? You still have to uh, remind yourselves of God's promises. You cannot escape it. It's a reality. And a conformity with sin, oh, well, this is who I am, right? Oh, no, that's, that's just me, my family character. That's not how it works, right? It'll be easy for me to say, that's just my mom's character. She was explosive. I am explosive, right? She flew me away several times. Uh, uh, when I behave bad, I'm going to flew my kids away too. Boom, right? No, because that's sinful, right? And the gospel has something to say, I believe, about how we raise our kids and how we discipline them even, right? It has lots of things to say about how do you live your life in the world? How do you uh, proceed in your working places, right? Um, it changes even societies. Um, it is very common in Ecuador to be corrupt. If you are not corrupt, it's because you are not doing things right. Why do you think that is... I know corruption exists here, but why do you think that is covered and under the rug? Because there is a Christian understanding behind. Broken, but it's still there, right? Germany doesn't become Germany uh, law-abiding citizens out of the blue. The Germans were not law-abiding citizens in the 14th and 13th centuries. Nor the English, nor the, the Dutch, no one. When the Reformation came, and when the Gospel came to every single one of those uh, pagan countries, that's when changes happened. I mean, there was a whole province in the Netherlands that used to eat people. Do you know what changed them? The gospel. All of those last names that end in Tra, those are cannibals. Hamstras, uh, all of those guys. Cannibals. Used to be cannibals. Not anymore, right? Uh, what, what stopped uh, uh, the spread of, of the Scandinavian people down into the continent? It was Charlemagne. Yes, that's true. But then they became Christians. And the, the driving force of killing and stealing and things like that stopped. Why? Because of the gospel. The gospel makes changes, tells us how, how we live our lives. We struggle with it. And then, um, more than anything, there is a struggle against uh, Hades, hell itself. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That, to me, that's very comforting as a pastor. Because when we see many things happening around us, and people go, oh, America, we're losing it. We can go, yeah, maybe. But the church is going to be here still. Right? Um, or when we go, oh, man, you know, so much sin in the church. I never imagined that will be the case. We can go, yeah, that's who we are. But Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So we have trust. We have confidence that he will sustain his church. Or when we go, this is so terrible that is happening in my life. It's horrible. Why me, God? Like my mom used to say, why me? Everything me. We can go, well, he will sustain me right? He will um, guide me. And in the end, I don't even know why, but I know what for. So I can be moved, transformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, right? Uh, and I'm not talking as someone who doesn't have experience with those things. I'm talking as someone who has been there uh, with you too. Um, and think about the church in persecution. 
think about North Korea, right? For some reason, North Korea has become so fascinating for me. And to see that still there are Christians there being tortured, persecuted, and somehow those guys manage to get Bibles and read them, and then they go and die for it. When was the last time that you died for it, <laughs> right? Um, die to yourself. Deny yourself. So all of these images speak about the church as militant, continuing in the faith, fighting for the, uh, the good fight. While we are in this world, the church is at war. Sin, the world, and the devil are the three enemies of the Christian and of the church. Uh, not dancing, playing cards, and going to the movies. Those are not the ones. Sin, the world, and the devil. A church that has left herself to be dominated by sin, worldliness, or, or by the schemes of the devil, has lost her militant character. And I added later on, in part, you don't have that, because that's that was done by Thursday. You don't have that. This is an addition that I put recently. Has lost her militant character, in part. Uh, because a totally corrupted uh, church doesn't exist. Because if that were to exist, then it's no longer a church, right? Uh, that's why we have other names for it. Uh, we have sects, cults, things like that. Those are not churches. If if a Mormon comes, um, you know, today, and he wants to take communion, we will be like, no, you are not a Christian. You don't belong to any church. You belong to your cult. Don't take it. it same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, even with Calvin, it's interesting how he, uh, although he's separating himself from the Roman church, he still says by the end of his treatment in, in uh, book two, uh, uh, second book, book four, chapter two, uh, that Rome still has traces of a true church. And that's why he fought for recognizing Roman Catholic baptism, something that sometimes we don't want to do today in our churches. Um, uh, the church in heaven is the triumphant church. There, is this, there the sword is exchanged for the palm of victory. The battle cries are turned into songs of triumph, and the cross is replaced by the crown. The strife is over, the battle is won, and the saints reign with Christ forever and ever. That comes from Berkhoff again. Uh, so remember what we said about the partial nature of the triumphant church, though. Also, because of Jesus Christ and our union with him, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 11, let me read it to you. For we who are alive in Christ are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words, when you could be selfish, and choose not to. When uh, you could be really mean and evil with someone who has uh, harmed you, and you choose to forgive instead, uh, that is the life of Jesus Christ being manifested in you. Those are glimpses of glory in your life uh, that, that the Holy Spirit is producing in you, telling you, yeah, this is who you are, uh, and you will see it entirely in the future, in, in glory. The life of Jesus is revealed in our mortal body. The biblical picture is one of a militant church that is triumphant, um, triumphing sorry, daily. That's from Dr. Venema. In other words, as we struggle with sin, the Christian life goes from glory to glory, right? We don't go, um, and, and, and um, by that I don't mean we are going to do everything perfect. But I mean, you are going to advance in the Christian life. It doesn't seem like, uh, and sometimes it's really small steps, like baby steps, but you are going to do it because God is working in you, because the Holy Spirit is transforming your life. It's not going to be like, oh, I have not lied in 30 years, right? Uh, as we have talked before. No, that doesn't happen. But you will see small changes in obedience. Uh, and I'm sure all of us have examples of that. Uh, so the church on earth fights and battles knowing that victory has already been granted to her and that in Jesus we walk from glory to glory. 
So some errors here uh, are triumphalism and perfectionism. Uh, triumphalism, Eusebius of Caesarea, he's present in the, the Nicene Council, and he's seeing uh, Constantine coming in <coughs> and proclaiming, excuse me, that Christianity now is uh, an acceptable religion that has no more uh, prohibitions to exist. And Eusebius goes, yes, we won. The church won. That's what he, he says. The church won. We have conquered the world. In conquering the empire, in conquering the emperor, we have conquered the world. That's what he says in his, in his history of the church. And, and he sees this transformation of the empire from, from persecution to victory. The bishops start wearing, the pastors um, that develop into bishops start wearing these amazing robes that look like the emperor, right? Because if the emperor has it, Jesus needs to have it too, right? And so the bishops start wearing that. The staffs start becoming golden staffs instead of just a little stick before that they had before. Uh, and Eusebius goes, yeah, we won. Did we? Right? Um, another example of that um, is the Crusades. Innocent the third. Do you remember? I think it was Innocent the third. I think it's Innocent the third, who calls the first crusade, and he is like, um, first of all, he's the most powerful pope of the whole history. There is no one like him, uh, with with the power that he had. Second, he goes, we are going to start an evangelistic crusade, not a la Billy Graham, but using the sword, conquering everything. And the one who fights for Jerusalem, um, we are going to give them forgiveness and a direct entrance into heaven. Um, and yeah, they recovered Jerusalem. They lost it later on. They recovered it again. They lost it again. Um, it doesn't work like that, right? Uh, transformationalists, uh, including some form of post-millennialists, this is what is going to happen. Right now, it's just ugly for a time, but the church is going to conquer. We are going to slowly take everything that belongs to us, and then uh, president a Christian, and every authority a Christian, and all of them Christians, and then, boom, we conquer, Jesus comes back. Um, that's not how it works either, because we saw all the references in the scriptures regarding the nature of the church here on earth as militant, as fighting. Even if we have some measure of success, it has to be renewed from generation to generation to generation. Charles Hodge, we don't need Christian schools here in America. Why? Because we are, an, we are a Christian nation. We don't need that. Well, fast forward 150 years, that didn't work, did it? We are no longer that nation, um, even if it was at, at his point. But that's his argument. We don't need Christian schools here in America because we are a Christian nation. And he advocates for uh, immigration uh, on basis of religion. So if you're a Roman Catholic, you cannot come in because we are a Protestant nation. Let's say that worked. Let's say Roman Catholics are not able to enter America anymore. All right. Uh, what about uh, uh, liberal Christianity that he himself was starting to see? That was a Protestant invention. That didn't work either, right? Um, so uh, that's, that's dangerous thinking. Um, even if God allows us certain success here on earth, even if we see the Church of Christ um, 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 prospering and transforming society in different ways, uh, the question all the time is, okay, how long and what are we exchanging for that prosperity? Right? We are going to exchange something. Um, do you want examples? 
um, the church in Germany, the Lutheran church, right? National church. Uh, the bishop is not the pastor, but the president, the um, um, prince. And he rules the church. And everyone enjoys uh, prosperity and freedom to be Lutheran for a time. Then liberalism enters in, pietism kicks in, and other uh, waves uh, kick in, and the Lutheran church is entirely gone. It's no longer a church. I don't know what you can call that, but it's not Christian church. It has abandoned the confession. So for how long, even if we conquer, right? And then uh, perfectionism. The fact that we are a militant church and that we need to be fighting continually against sin and the fact that uh, we are uh, triumphing daily doesn't mean that you are going to arrive to a point where you can say, I made it. Because you are going to die being a sinner. And something is going to cross your head. Something is going to happen in your, in your heart. I don't know what. And you are going to sin. Because you are a sinner. That's your ontological nature right now. You have something attached to you that is called sin. And you will not be removed of that until you expire. Like, like a bad milk or something. Uh, and then in glory you will be perfect. And then you your body restored in glory when Jesus comes back will be perfect. And then that sin will be gone forever. So there is no perfectionism on this side of glory. All right. Do you have any questions regarding a visible, no, excuse me, militant and triumphant church? Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Um, are you a post-millennialist? I know. <laughs> Frank is going to kill me. <laughs> um, the local and universal church. Uh, we must also recognize that the church exists locally and universally. Uh, these are not uh, terms of lower and higher, but of geographical distribu distribution. That is, uh, local church, not as good. Universal church, that's good stuff. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about church in a local area and church as spread throughout, throughout the world. So, um, not they, uh, excuse me, nor are they terms that imply that the local church is not a true and complete church of Jesus Christ. We are not, we are actually, uh, we are not distinguishing the, the part and the whole. Let me just read something, read something for you. In the first place, this church with its thousands of members was, despite its unity, divided up in some fashion, that is the apostolic church. It could not meet in a single building but it had to gather in groups in private homes. That's what we see in the book of Acts, do we not? The church in Jerusalem, uh, 5,000 people. Do you really think uh, they gather in one place when they are being persecuted? No, in fact, Peter, when he's released, he goes to the house of someone where the guys were praying for him. But it was not 5,000 people. Otherwise, that would have been a really big house. Um, it's small, small gatherings. Um, undoubtedly, the first house churches, as we also encountered them elsewhere in the apostolic period, originated in Jerusalem. We read that believers assembled not only in the temple courts, but also in houses, um, from house to house, uh, but at home and in different houses, Acts 2, 46 and 5, 42, among others in the houses of Mary and of James. That's Acts 12. So, uh, when we are talking about the local church, we're talking about those in, in the scriptures, those small little house churches or um, TRPC, right? Um, uh, here, or Living Redeemer in uh, Junction, or Trinity in, in, uh, in um, Newcastle. Uh, what we mean by this distinction is that the local church or congregation is not the whole or the universal church. There are other churches with which it has a relationship uh, of two kinds, with those of like confession and with those with, um, whose confession more or less differs. This follows from the confession 
we make of the unity, holiness, Catholicity, and apostolicity of the church. In other words, uh, we unite ourselves as a local church, we unite ourselves with other churches that have the same confession. When you go to a church and they go, we are the only church, think Mormons, right? The church has been gone for centuries after Jesus Christ. And then we show up and we are the true church. Like that's a red flag right there. Heresy, Patrick, in your head has to be like, that's heresy, Patrick, that's heresy. Run away. Run away. Uh, because, because that's heretical. And it's very prideful too. Really? Are you the only one who has seen the truth and no one else? What makes you so special? Right? Uh, uh, this is like, oh, I read my Bible and I don't require anything else. Really? Like, not even a devotional? You didn't read any? No, I came to that with, in my own conclusions. Like, no, no, that's not how it works. For, for once, uh, we are the product of our culture. And whether you are getting some biblical instruction directly or indirectly, you are getting concepts from the culture you are raised in. Your parents are the first ones who uh, put in you certain things about the Bible, about God, about Jesus Christ. So you already have something that you're receiving from you that is not of yourself. Um, so the, the pastor that says, I just read my Bible and that's how I prepare my messages. There are two options. Whether his messages are really bad or uh, he's lying to you. Because no one can do it by, by himself. That's why we have commentaries and things like that. Um, so we need one another. We need other churches. No one can say, oh, we are the only church. No, that's not true. Uh, there is more to the church than just what we see here in uh, TRPC. TRPC is an expression of the local church. And the PCA, think about our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, is an expression of the universal church on earth. And then uh, we have a bigger um, circle, if you want, uh, the Napark churches, the, what does that mean? Uh, yes, North American Presbyterian and Reformed churches. Oops. Yeah, so that's even a bigger expression of uh, the Presbyterian churches that uh, under one umbrella will receive different denominations. Uh, Presbyterian Church in America, Orthodox Presbyterian Church in America, Free Church of Scotland continuing, uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, Associate uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church, and, and all of those other guys. That's a bigger expression of the church. We unite ourselves. We have cordial relationships, recognizing these guys are churches too, right? And then uh, even bigger, NAPARC, uh, Southern Baptist Convention, uh, the AGNA, and other, other bigger ones too. But those are more loose in nature because we don't share the same confession we differ in many other things but that doesn't mean that we are going to say you are not a christian right you guys to hell because you have those uh, vestments and garments and we don't like that um or or you are dunkers so we don't like you and you know you are going to hell um and i have found that the most normal way in which this local universal relationship is manifested in the world, even today, is when we, as churches, we collaborate, collaborate no matter what with, um, with deeds of uh, mercy. Um, I don't know how many churches give to Samaritan's Purse, but that clearly is something that is away from our confession. They don't share maybe the same confession, and yet we know they are doing a Christian a deed, a ministry of mercy, and we gladly collaborate, right? And we, we, we find that in the scriptures. Uh, so Acts 11, 28, uh, <coughs> and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined uh, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Right? First Corinthians 16, um, 
Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed to the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you uh, accredit by, by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So famine in Jerusalem. What are the other churches, the Gentile churches doing? Sending relief to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Uh, so several years ago, um, we were riding in our car. And then I, I kind of felt like the car was moving. And I was like, that's weird. Well, it turns out it was an 8.1 uh, earthquake in Ecuador. And uh, it destroyed the whole city in ashes and everything. And the first people to send aid was churches. They didn't ask, like, are they Christians? You know, uh, are they Presbyterians? No, they sent help to churches first. And that's normally how this, this works. Think about Japan or India. The first people who went there to help were the churches. Government didn't do anything. That's just bad karma. Don't touch it. Leave it there. Uh, you are going to get bad karma, right? That's how it works over there. Uh, you are going to not reincarnate in a cow but in a butterfly and someone is going to kill you because you helped that guy who doesn't deserve anything. Um, Christians were like hospitals. We are going to give them shelter, food, and everything. And that was not the effort of one church. It was the effort of a lot of churches who chimed in to help them. Um, and no one was asking, well, are you a PCA guy? Are you an OPC guy? Uh, and, and sometimes it works like that, but not always. Um, the poverty-stricken congregations of Macedonia contributed towards the poor in Jerusalem church. Um, Achaia did likewise, and this, the Thessalonians too. Paul speaks of the unity and common bond of the churches in those passages that you can check for yourself later on. All right, so do you have any questions? Yes? Well, it's probably clear, but I think it's worth just clarifying a little bit about the difference in the virtual church. Oh. No, I didn't talk about that. That's a good, that's a good, that's a good question. So universalism as in regards to salvation? Yeah, uh, so universalism is uh, the doctrine that says no matter who you are, God is going to, to welcome you in, in, um, in heaven because, because he has paid for the sins of the whole world in Jesus Christ. Everyone, whether you confess him or not, um, that's why... Um, I forgot his name. The Roman Catholic theologian of the 20th century. Um, should I have his book? Excuse me? No. Um, anyhow, forget about it. But he says there are secret Christians. People who may not be walking as Christians, may not even be Christians. Some good Hindus, some good Muslims, some good Buddhists, uh, some good Japanese people who... Don't trust in Jesus Christ, but they pursue their religion faithfully. Those guys are going to heaven too. What's his name? Carl Runner. He says that. Uh, he has this uh, secret uh, Christian uh, theory. That's universalism. Carl Barth. Uh, in the end, God is going to see the world, and then he's going to go, you can come in too, because Jesus paid uh, for it. That's universalism. The universal church is, it has to be first of all a church uh, that is confessing the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And I'm not talking about here if you, if, um, if you dunk uh, Christians or if you uh, sprinkle Christians, uh, you, you are going to better heaven, lesser heaven. I don't know. That's, that's not what it means. It means we recognize everyone who confesses the name of Jesus Christ as part of the universal church, right? Um, and that Christian has to be part of a local church, whether that is Baptists or our friends over here uh, from the Anglican church or from the 
uh, Montrose Church or Celebration, we will say they belong to the Universal Church, different local churches in the same town. That's, that's the difference. Universal Church manifested throughout the world, Universalism, heresy, Patrick. Uh, re remember that Universalism is a heresy. I have like two volumes uh, talking about different ways in which theologians have spoken about universalism. Uh, and there is the doctrine even in Muslim uh, religions. Um, but anyhow, that's not on your concern right now. Uh, do you have any questions? Good question, though. I'm digressing already. Um, do you have any other questions? No? Comments? Remember, uh, universalism, heresy, Patrick. We are the only church, true church. There is no one else. Heresy, Patrick. Um, and then we are to, as we are living in this world, we are going to fight against our sins. Why are all of those things, let me close with this, why are all of, this, all of those things uh, going to happen or be true? Because of Jesus. Uh, remember the cross. He died for your sins. He remained on the cross because of you. He rose again from the dead and has ascended into the presence of the Father and is seated at the right hand of power. All of those things are done in your favor. And then Jesus says, right, uh, John, uh, I think it's 15, I will send you the comforter. He will lead you to all truth. So the Holy Spirit is going to move you, stir you up towards a life of constant sanctification. Are you going to fail? Yes. But fear not, you can continue repenting and walking the Christian life. And in the end, you will be received in glory. Because of how well you did it? No. Because of Jesus Christ. Because he will sustain you until the end. So do not fret, do not be afraid, do not fall in despair. But also remember, we have a duty because the Spirit is transforming us. We are going to walk the Christian walk. All right? Let's pray. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You say that to say that the elect are synonymous with the universal church? Yes and no. Okay. Uh, yes, in the sense that we talked about the um, attributes of the church. The one of the attributes of the church is that it is universal, right? One one church, holy, Catholic, universal. Catholic, universal, um, and apostolic. So when we are talking about the attributes of the church, the universal church, the Catholicity of the, uh, Catholicity of the church means that the church is composed by God's <coughs> elect from the beginning of the world until the end of the world. When we are talking about the local and universal church in this sense, in this mode of existence of the church here on earth, we need to talk about a mixture of people in the universal church. Because you cannot guarantee that everyone who goes to TRPC and Victory Baptist and Celebration and Montrose Christian and St. Stephen's, every one of those guys are going to heaven and are going uh, and are elect because you don't know. But you guys know about yourselves. So that's the distinction between the manifestation. That's what I'm saying. This is one of the modes of manifestation of the church here on earth. It's local in the sense that we are TRPC. And uh, only you guys know uh, about your election. I don't know. And we talked about last time about the visible and invisible church. So that's, that's the distinction. Yeah. Make sense? So visible and the invisible church are part of the universal church right now. Yep. Yep. As it, as it is manifested on earth. Yep. Yep. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your church. Thank you for um, the fact that we are a militant church, but we are not left to ourselves. But that in Jesus Christ, you have granted us of your Holy Spirit to fight the good fight. So, Father, as we learn about uh, the militant church and the local church, uh, we recognize that from all uh, directions, we are under attack, even from within us, as sin and the devil and the world uh, attacks us, Lord. So uh, help us, provide for us, uh, guard us with your spirit, 
So, may, so we may live according to your will and for your glory. And in the end, we may have said with Paul that we have run, uh, the, the, that we have fought the good fight and that we have obtained and arrived to the goal. Help us to that effect, Lord, and bless us as we prepare ourselves to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters.